Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. ask God any question, what would it be? If you can ask God any question, what would it be? Take a moment and think about that. I'm guessing in this room we would have, you know, a hundred odd people, so the number of questions we'd have would be, some people would have similar questions, but some questions might be particular to you. Some pe- questions might be emotional sorts of questions. Some questions might be intellectual sorts of questions. My guess is that on the tip of our collective tongues this morning, on the tip of our collective tongues this morning were neither of these sorts of questions. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? I mean, I'm guessing none of us, given that opportunity to think of a question to ask God, came up with that one. How about the next one? A woman married seven brothers, and at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Oh, it's it's almost like one of those riddles that you tell on the schoolyard, isn't it? How did he die? Was it the icicle dropping from the ceiling, or he crashed there, or or what have you? I'm guessing those aren't the questions that were on the tip of our collective tongues. Uh, And they're pretty niche questions, aren't they? They're questions about um, a certain segment of our thinking and of our lives. I'm guessing having seen those questions now, there's a couple of people in the congregation this morning who would be fascinated to find out the answers. Oh, well, actually, I, I see the, the merit, the value in that. That is something that I want to um, have answered. But that would be niche. That would be just for a few of us this morning. Much more likely, near the top of our list would be a question like this. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? A question that's basically asking about how we, how we should live our lives, uh, what, what should be the, like, the goal that we have, the, the forefront of our minds. A couple of weeks ago, um, when I was preaching at the end of Mark 11, we looked at the uh, idea of our motives when we're asking questions. When we can ask good questions, we can ask bad questions, we can do it with good motives, we can do it with bad motives. Sometimes we're, we're asking the question because we're genuinely seeking to find the answer, and sometimes we're, we're just using the question as a smokescreen uh, to put off finding the truth. And um, if you didn't hear that, by all means, go. You can check out the podcast, go on iTunes and things like that, you can find it. Um, But the first two questions that went up, the the question of taxes and the question of multiplications of marriages, um, they're they're good examples, we're going to see in Mark chapter 12, of decent questions, but being asked with absolutely stinking motives. But this third question that comes along uh, in our passage this morning is at last somebody asking with sincerity, and it elicits from Jesus a far more sincere response and a far more helpful response for us, I think. 
Um, we need to trace out what's been going on, though, where these questions are coming from, etc. So we're going to pick it up from verse 13. And verse 13, uh, this is what we read. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Um, you'll notice that even at our start, there's a call back to what's been going on before. The they that Mark is referring to here is that kind of nebulous group, the chief priests, um, the teachers of the law, the elders, the scribes. Um, that's who is coming together, still really responding to the, what happened when Jesus came into the temple and drove out the money changers. Do you remember that story? Jesus challenging their authority. Um, they've come, they've questioned Jesus themselves about that. Jesus has responded. Jesus told a parable that John was helping us look at last week, uh, pretty blatantly calling them out and criticizing them publicly for how they had stewarded everything that God had given them. That's the context. That's the they who then decide to send this weird group Pharisees and Herodians to go and ask Jesus a further question. So they come and they say, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? What do you think? Do you think this is a good question or a bad question? Hand, hands up. Let's actually go for this. Show of hands. Do you think this question of whether or not they should be paying tax to the Roman occupiers is a good question or a bad question? Hands up, good question. Okay, Phil. Hands up, bad question? Like daft, daft thing to ask? I'm going to come down in the middle and I'm going to say it's just a weird question. It's just a weird question. Let me ask you again. Do you think it's being asked with good motives? Okay, just, just my hand. Or bad motives? Okay, that's a bit more unanimous. I like that. Yeah. Do they really want to know? That's what we should be asking when we come here, and, it, and it's really what Jesus is trying to discern before he gives an answer. Do they really want to know about Caesar and tax and um, civil life and how people of faith should live in that situation? Of course they don't. It's prefaced with this idea that they're trying to catch him in his words. It's another smoke screen. Another pretty blatant attempt to try to manipulate Jesus into undermining himself and even incriminating himself in front of crowds. It's interesting that of the two groups, half of them, the Pharisees, hated the Roman rule, and they wanted to do everything that they could to stand against it, which presumably would lead them to the conclusion of, we're not going to pay Caesar a penny. When the other half, the Herodians, well, they were sort of more like, live and let live. Let's assimilate into this culture. Let's welcome our Roman overlords and serve them as well as we can. They actually, the two groups who came to question Jesus, had very opposing views themselves. Whatever Jesus gives then, he's going to split his support in theory, isn't he? But this is what we read. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? I, I was fascinated this week going through the commentaries that there's, there's two occasions in Mark's gospel when the Greek word for trap there is used. It's used of them here, 
trying to trap Jesus. And it's used as well of when, in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is out in the wilderness and Satan is trying to tempt Jesus, to trap him. It's the only two times that word is used. They're being like Satan here, trying to trap Jesus. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, that's one of the common coins, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and they asked, and um, he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. So yet again, this is an example of Jesus just cutting through the nonsense. All the haze, all the smoke screen. And he discerns exactly what is going on. They, who in a sense are enemies of each other, the Pharisees and Herodians, the supporters of Rome and those opposed to Rome, are united here with this common goal of seeing Jesus undone. They're united in their bid to try and divide him and his support. And his answer is brilliant. I mean, if we sum it up, what is he basically saying? He's saying, well, if you're using Caesar's money, you kind of have to give it back to Caesar, haven't you? I mean, you can't go around saying this is mine when it's literally got his face and his name stamped on it. So do what is the sensible, reasonable thing and give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And while we're at it, give back to God what belongs to him too. Their jaws hit the deck. Not only has their plan of getting Jesus to trap himself in his words failed, but Jesus really has brought clarity to an issue that genuinely was an issue of the day. Jesus has brought a clarity to the situation that no um, chief priests, teachers of the law, scribes, elders had been able to bring clarity up until that point. So what do you do next? If your heart is set on tricking Jesus, on trapping Jesus, on arresting Jesus, on killing Jesus, what do you do next? Well, then, it says, the Sadducees, who, were, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. I don't know whether this was Mark's intent, but I, again, I found it interesting this week that two groups come, and they couldn't trap or trick Jesus. And that's whittled down now to just one group, another group. Perhaps them on their own, they can come and find a chink in Jesus' armor. And, and notice what Mark says about these people. The Sadducees, who we presumably know very little about, but we need to know this, Mark says. They say that there is no resurrection. That's one of the things that marked them out especially. So what did they ask him about then? Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. It's a slightly weird law that culturally we just wouldn't get. Um, in ancient Israel, there was this deep, deep desire to have someone's name preserved, their, their kind of lineage carried on. Um, and that was done by having children. You had children and your name carried on. You carried on through them. So this idea that if your brother died and didn't have any children, there was a responsibility for you to help carry on his name. So now there were seven brothers, they say. So they make up this crazy situation, like the nth degree of this law. 
The first one married and died without leaving any children, and the second one married the widow. But he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third, and, and in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? It's an absurd hypothetical. And it's even more absurd when you consider who is asking this hypothetical. These people don't believe in the resurrection in the first place, and yet they try to use some kind of theological um, uh, mind boggler to trick Jesus. It's a little bit like nowadays an atheist saying or asking the question, can God move a rock that's so big or make a rock that's so big that even he can't move it? It's, it's like an absurd question to ask, like logically it doesn't make any sense, but also the premise of the question is that there is a God and you don't believe that, and then just the whole situation is daft, is silly. They already don't believe that there is a resurrection, so they ask Jesus, and in doing so they're being disingenuous to begin with. More than that, their intent isn't again, it is not to get an answer about the afterlife, is it? They don't really want to know. They are trying to trap Jesus in the questions. But Jesus answers them, and he answers them uh, strikingly, I think. Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? I mean, that is a strong response. We've said the thing that Mark wanted us to know is that they are people who don't believe in the resurrection, but something that we should know is that these are one of the highest groups in all of the, the Jewish religious setup. These are like top dogs. These are the guys who make a lot of the main decisions about what goes on in temple worship and what have you. And Jesus says, I see the problem here, boys. Simple to clear it up. You don't know your scriptures. And you don't know the power of God. It's like, what else should they have known? What else could they have known? Jesus completely and utterly takes their legs away. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Again, for a certain segment of us here this morning, that will be a fascinating answer to a fascinating question. We see it as a little chink, as a little window staring into eternity and the afterlife. What is it going to be like once we've died and once we've gone to heaven and once Jesus has returned? What will that be like it's a proof text at last from Jesus' lips on the reality of eternal life. So some of us will be fascinated by that. I don't want to dwell too long. We can chat about it. I'm happy to spend hours over a coffee going through it in and out. What really we should see is that Jesus sees the heart of those people who come and ask the question. And he allows for no nonsense. He doesn't give an inch. He doesn't give any ground to them. If you really want to come to me, this is my paraphrase, with your silly questions, then I'll let everybody see 
how silly you really are. Happy to do it. My absolute pleasure to go on and speak about these things, Jesus says. But you're not going to look good if I do that. And so I just, we're, paint, we're still just painting the picture because I want us to get to the good question and the good answer. We're painting the picture of they've come and they've tried to use something that's controversial to trap Jesus. That hasn't worked. So they've come and they've tried to use something that's absurd in order to trap and to trick Jesus. And as you're making your way down the list, you'll see that really there is only one thing left for it. And that's for somebody to come to Jesus with sincerity and to genuinely ask Jesus a genuine question. And that is exactly what happens next. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Two groups down to one group and now just an individual. Slowly they are being weeded out, whittled down. And this is what we read about this teacher of the law. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Like at last, as we're reading through it, we should be saying, finally, an honest question from the heart. Did you notice what kind of sparked this? There's no comment. There's no notes really about his motives. There's just an individual who has heard Jesus giving good answers and thinks, well, perhaps then, I can ask a question and get a good answer. You know that the, the, the kind of the religious band of merry men have had a scathing time so far in Mark's gospel. Whenever the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, whenever their names have been mentioned, it has not been in a good light. It's important for us to see that even amongst that group, what is remarkable is that someone can come and can genuinely inquire of the truth. It's not an uncommon question that he's asking. It's uh, the sort of thing that the religious leaders, the teachers, those kind of like interested in theology would bat around, trying to figure out, well, we've got this. They'd come up with a list of 620-odd laws. How do we decide what is the most important? It's the sort of thing that they loved to sit around and to chat about. So it's not an uncommon question. It's not really a deep question either in that sense. It's a genuine question, but it's slightly academic. The most remarkable thing is his heart, which we truly see when we see how he responds to what Jesus has said. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, there is none other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one did answer him. Ask him any more questions. Did you see it in how the 
teacher responded to Jesus' response to his question. He accepted what Jesus said. He kind of synthesized it. He didn't just repeat verbatim. And he even added a little bit of clarification on at the end. All of that which you have just said is more important than burnt sacrifices and offerings. And then Jesus' commendation of him. Suggesting that he is someone who is not far from the kingdom of God. You can see that this exchange is genuinely between someone who wants to know the truth. Who, who isn't trying to trick Jesus and just use questions and ideas and situations and controversy and absurdity as a way of putting Jesus at arm's length. He's interested. He wants to know and he's willing to process and to learn what's going on. That's why I think Jesus' answer to this question in this chapter is the answer that we should be paying the most attention to. Because if we're coming and we've got hard hearts, if we're coming and we've got bad motives, if we're coming and we're asking questions because all we want to do is keep Jesus at arm's length, well then, game's up already. Game's over already. But if we genuinely want to know Jesus, what is this? world that you have put us in who are you who am i what have you done what does it mean if we're genuinely coming and we've got open hearts and open minds this this is the answer that we need to consider so what is it then that jesus says in response what is his honest answer to the honest question well when all is said and done says jesus the law and life really, in this world, is about love. It's about loving God, and it's about loving others. Um, John read out a passage from uh, Deuteronomy, which is what Jesus is quoting to begin with when he's speaking about the Lord God being one. Uh, love God with all your mind, soul, strength. Um, it's called the Shema. It's something which uh, Jews, I think even to this day, you repeat, they pray on a daily basis. It was already very, very, very important to them. It's something that kind of controlled their thinking and defined their thinking. Um, there's some wonderful resources online that I'm going to link to through the church Facebook page on Monday. Um, a series of videos by the Bible Project people who look at it, um, exploring what it means about God loving God and, and what mind and soul and strength and all of these sorts of things are. But it's interesting, I think, that Jesus chooses this one as the formulation for what it means to live. Uh, his answer to the greatest commandment question, that love should be the supreme thing, love of God and love of others. There are other formulations given in the scriptures. You may have passages, verses, ideas, senses about what makes the good Christian life. The one that jumps out at me most profoundly is the number of times in the New Testament faith, hope, and love are all bundled together as that like trifecta of defining what it is to be a Christian. If you want to know more about that, by all means, spend hours chatting to Win Jones. You're happy to speak to people about faith, hope, and love, Win, yeah? Yeah, very happy. Um, but, it, but even there, you see, love is the one that stands out. We were at a wedding yesterday, and amazingly, 1 Corinthians 13 wasn't read. But we all know 1 Corinthians 13 from weddings. It's the passage about love. Love is patient. Love um, does not keep a record of wrongs, or all of these sorts of things. And it finishes with that 
amazing declaration that uh, only three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So even in that trifecta, here is something which stands out, love. Well, what is so amazing about love then? How is it that loving God and loving others can sum up the entire law, can sum up the whole biblical description of what it is to be a human being? Faith, hope, and love. Above all, love. Love God, love others. Strikes me that of those three options, love is different in that love gives. Now, this might just take a little bit of head work and a bit of uh, space to think about, but think about faith and hope. Faith takes salvation through Christ. Faith receives. Hope accepts the promise of what is to come through Christ. It, again, is a taking thing. If we have faith and we have hope, that means we are people who receive from outside. But if we are people who have love, we are people who give. I think this is what Jesus, and I think this is what Mark are getting at, because if you carry on reading, he gives two examples. The first example is a bad example. It's the bad example of the scribes. He starts off, he asks the the crowd gathered a question, and it's a theological question, it's a technical question about their understanding of a certain psalm, their understanding of who the Messiah was going to be, to kind of show and to highlight that they really didn't have this authority that comes from using and understanding the Bible. But then his description of the scribes is just scathing. He says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They love to have the most important seats in synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. His description of someone who fails to love God and love others are these people who are marked out by take, take, take. They want the respect. They want the honor. They want the glory. They want the praise. They want to be noticed. They want even to prey on the vulnerable financially. They take, take, take. And he says that is bad because the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and to love others as yourself. And then he gives a good example. And again, he picks up on this idea of the woman. It says, verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples, Jesus wanted to make a point of this. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The first example are people who take any way, any way they can. That's what they're about. And then this widow who gives everything that she can. Love gives. Of course, the greatest example to us isn't 
found in Mark chapter 12 there at the end, a bad example or a good example. The example, the greatest example is Jesus. Who when we're told in scriptures to think about what love is supposed to be like, we're pointed constantly back to him. Back to who he was and what he has done on our behalf. This is love, that he would lay down his life for us. That he would do what? Give of him very, of his very self for us. That he would not count his equality with God something to be grasped, but he would lay that aside. Humbling himself, being found in the form of a human, even humbling himself to death on a cross. Love, Jesus is love, gives, does not hold back. And that's what Jesus says should define us as human beings. That we love, that we give, that we sacrifice for others. Christ in love has given all for us, hasn't he? He has given everything for us. And Jesus here is showing us and pointing us in exactly the same direction, that the pinnacle of life on planet Earth is to give to God, to love God, those and to those who bear his image. Sometimes I think we can be scared of coming to God. Maybe you're not a Christian, and one of the things that really you can't wrap your head around is this idea that if you come to, to God, if you confess Christ, if you put your faith in him, then you're going to come and you're going to find 623 laws on how you should live your life, things that you have to do, things that you're not allowed to do, etc., 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 that loving God means having all your liberties and your freedoms taken away from you. It's having things imposed on you from the outside. Can I say this morning that the most fundamental thing about the gospel, the most fundamental thing about Christ, about Christianity, is that he gives, not that he takes. And I want us to see as well this morning that when we are called to love God and to love others, that is not something that is forced on us. We are called to give freely what we have for other people. If it is something that is forced from us in how we serve God, how we give to God, how we use our mind, our soul, our strength, our, our everything to love him, then it's not really love. If when we give to one another, when we care for one another, when we bear with one another, when we forgive one another, when we serve one another, when we honor one another, when we encourage one another, all those things that it describes in the scriptures that we're supposed to do to each other, if that is forced, then it's not out of love, is it? Love gives. Love gives freely. The widow gives freely. Jesus gave freely. So when we love in return for that, it isn't a love that is taken, it's a love that is given. So I would say, you don't need to be afraid this morning that God is a God who takes, 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 takes from us. Even when that means giving to him. Do you see? That if we're loving God, we will give. The primary description of how God deals with us is the love that he gives us in Christ. That opens us up, that frees us to love him with everything that we have and to love one another 
as ourselves. Don't be scared that coming to Christ, that confessing him, that putting your faith and your hope in him is something that will constrain you and rob you of your freedoms. Like That couldn't be further from the truth. Christ is the one who has, in giving himself, set us free. But having come to Christ, having seen and asked and heard the honest answer to the honest question of what life is really all about, don't stop there. I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult description that Jesus gives of this guy who comes and asks the question, who understands the answer that Jesus gives, who synthesizes it and kind of applies it. I see that is better than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. They're not really offered in love. They are demanded by God. This love is something that is voluntary. It's it's giving. That guy who's seen it, who's heard it, who's synthesized it, who's applied it, Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. I can only read that to mean that he hasn't quite got it yet. That Jesus still wants to invite him, to trust in him, to lean on him, to love him for himself. I wonder this morning how many of us know, understand, believe in the good news of who Jesus is, but haven't quite responded for ourselves who still are stuck in that place of wanting, well, not to love God, but to uh, like God, or be apathetic about God, or to be afraid of God, or to hate God. Not to love others, but to, to love ourselves, to, to, to honor ourselves before other people. To end up actually, though we wouldn't like to admit it, looking an awful lot like the scribes and the teachers of the law who Jesus describes as the bad example close to the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' way of inviting him to take that final step. And I encourage everyone here this morning, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, to, to keep walking, to keep moving, to keep following into that greatest command of loving God with everything you have, with loving others as you would love yourselves. Not because you are compelled to, but because love gives, just as Christ has given everything for us. We're going to respond in song. The song is about offering up our lives, about giving back to God everything that we have. And I I want to challenge us this morning to make it not just a song that we sing, but a prayer that we're praying, genuinely asking the question, not as a smokescreen, not as something just to fill the time, but a genuine way of exploring, well, what does this look like in my life then? Where Am I on this spectrum of asking the genuine question, of having seen the truth and responded to it, of figuring out like the man in the story, that is better than burnt offerings. What is loving God and loving others for you? Sing the song, but pray the song and ask with honesty in your hearts what loving God with everything you have, loving others as yourself would look like for you. Lord God, we thank you for um, all of these questions of how they show us something of how you understand not just the words on our lips, but the words and the thoughts that are in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, help us even now as we sing this song, uh, not to be fudging it, not to be faking it, but to be genuinely asking the question, what does it mean to love you with everything?
in response to the love that we have in Christ, which was given us everything. Be with us especially now as we sing and as we pray and as we ask this question, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.